Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. I hope you've been well since we last spoke. And Michael, how have you been? I've been much better, Gary, thank you. So, Michael, it has uh, come out recently that the words of TRSI have rebounded through the radio waves and into the halls of British media. <laughs> they have indeed. Our little prayer, our little suggestion that, you know, our nearest neighbours and our dearest friends, our cousins in the islands, should maybe look upon our lowly state, fuck-a-doodled as we are by the EU rollout of the vaccines, and maybe find it in their hearts to give us a bit of an old dig-out. Well, we have a, a story which is being, which well, it's been, we've mentioned it the last couple of times, it's been bubbling away there uh, in social media and amongst people what matters in uh in London, but it's actually in the Mail on Sunday now. There's a story. The headline is, Send Surplus Jabs to Ireland, Boris Urged. Yes, apparently Mr. Johnson is facing mounting calls to come to the aid of the Irish Republic. Now, I, I had a quick uh, chat with some of the lads I know in England who are in the political space just to see if this is kind of just, you know, if they're flying a kite or what exactly happening here. And what I was told, and it may be true, it may be total nonsense, as is the general nature of political rumours, is that no, there are actually a group of uh, Tory MPs who actually want this done. And there are a couple of reasons being put forward. One is that there's a massive amount of British people who have Irish heritage, and it's a good play to them electorally. Two, with the common travel area, a common area of vaccination actually makes a lot of sense. And they're kind of saying, well, if we help them get up to spec because they are way ahead of us, that lessens the chance that they'll bring it into England. And that's all good. And the third one is because, uh, if I could basically sum this up, wouldn't be fucking great put them in a position where they have to say yes. Yeah, uh, the first point you made is, occurs to me, actually, that, uh, that as regards the, 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 the political upsides of it further, I mean, the largest concentrations of traditional, still Irish-identifying voters would be in the North Midlands and the North. And, and actually, precisely in those places where the Tories breached the Red Wall in the last election, those areas where people were historically absolutely Labour voters, but they were socially conservative, but uh, left-leaning on economic issues. And that would be very much the, the demographic of the, the, the Irish voter in the United Kingdom. Traditionally Labour voters, but socially conservative. As you say it, just occurs to me now, Places particularly like around in, in, in the in the northeast, around Lancashire and over in the northwest, uh, uh, northwest in Lancashire, northeast over in Newcastle. Those places, lots and lots of Irish voters, and the Tories obviously are going to have to look ahead. They've got those seats now, and they have to try and find a way of keeping them. And this could be a very good way of getting a little bit of good sentiment in. Secondly, I think I wouldn't underestimate. I have a lot of Tory friends, Tory English friends. Now we have a different understanding because we're being both set, both of us as being conservatives. We have a sense of of the nation and the nation state, which unfortunately in Ireland comes into a kind of a an irresolvable problem because we both see the same bit of the island as part of the same nation. However, they do actually they have there is I would say in the last year there's a there's a genuine sense of. I don't know, of, of cousinship, of fellowship, that we occupy these islands, that we have a relationship which is going back a very, very long time. Back at, like, you know, Gary, back in the 19th century, 
literally half of Wellington's army, and then all through the mix, half of the army would have been stocked by Irish men. Even as recently as the Second World War, tens of thousands of Irishmen fought in 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 the in the uniform, the Queen's uniform, and before that, in the First World War. There are special, there are relationships there which they recognise. On social media, there's that sense that this would be the right thing to do. But as you say, there's also that sense. You know what? It's the right thing to do, but it will also be a fantastic way of trolling both the both those people in the Irish elites that have been pretty pissy with uh, Boris Johnson and with the Brexiteers, and of course the Commission. Because how how do you turn it down, Bugari? I don't. I mean, I can see there would be people who would want to turn it down. Who would be looking for a way to turn them and see that the commission, well, at least Ursula, would want them to say no, find a way to put. I can you uh, can you picture the scene, right? I mean, if it's next week or next month, the word goes round. Boris has said, "Listen, we have done all of ours. Sometime, maybe in April, we're going to be in a position to let you have a million vaccines, and you can start to ramp up your basis your." Your, your vaccination in that process, that'll get you over the hump until the next EU ones come in. Can you imagine if the word went round that the government was considering saying no? You could legitimately see a lynch mob. I think you would. And I'm saying this, I think seriously. If I heard that, if I was sitting here in Gori and I heard that, and I had reason to believe that it was a serious prospect, I actually think I would get in my car and drive to Dublin and stand outside Leinster House and shout at them. I really think, we think, I thank God so far, I've had friends of friends and families who have had bad COVID, and I know a few people who had family members die. But I had, thank God, up to now, nobody close to me. But there are many, many people in this country who have had that experience and will have that experience, sadly, over the next couple of months. And you're going to say to them, Either because we don't want the English to have something over us, or we don't want to upset the Commission. Because of that, we're going to turn down this opportunity to save a part of our economy, to get us back to normality, to stop people getting sick and to stop some people dying. We're not going to take... I think that people would lose their lives over it. I think people would lose... I think it would be pitchforks. And the the villagers will be up at the castle. Yeah, well, according to the Mail on Sunday, uh, number 10 is now actively considering it. And some of the numbers that have been thrown around are uh, in the case, or in respect, in relation to Britain, not that large, but in in relation to Ireland would be massively beneficial. Massively beneficial. But Gary, only the last, on the last uh, podcast, we were talking about the numbers of vaccines which have been approved and are going to shortly be approved that Britain has actually ordered. Another thing in parenthetically, that Boris Johnson, the great cretin, apparently got right. He appointed one woman to be the head of this special task force to oversee the the procurement of the vaccine, to select which vaccines and in what numbers. And she seems to have done a very, very good job. Yes, but she was from the private sector, Michael. (laughs) She was indeed from the private sector. But anyway, the consequence is that as it stands with uh, with uh, uh, Novamax and uh, Cure, can I even include CureVac? We're looking at in within the first quarter of this year approved vaccines with orders in of two hundred and eighty million doses, something like that. I mean, the UK will need a hundred and 
40 million doses to, to do everybody, is it roughly? 140, 150 million doses. So they are looking at a serious surplus. Now, that will be long a long way down the line to actually look at that. But they may even have surpluses before that, considering their capacity to, they may have more than they have a capacity to, to give out at any one time. So considering the size of our population, you know, a couple of million doses really would make a massive difference later on, four or five million doses. And uh, Neil Richmond, the European Affairs spokesman for Ireland's Fine Gael party, this is quoting from the Sunday Mail article, said, the offer was very generous, but unlikely to be realised because Ireland was part of the European vaccine rollout. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Now, this may be accidental, but the phrase unlikely to be realised is substantially different than the phrase unlikely to be offered. And given that it's Neil Richmond, and it's something about the EU, he may actually think that if it's offered and the EU says, you know, lads, you're in our program, you can't take that, that the only course of action is not to take it. Yeah. And I would be very interested if the rest of the government, particularly, let's say, lads like John McGuinness, uh, who have what we would call uh, you know, a strong sense of, of politics of any particular issue, would think about turning down, let's say, five million vaccines from the British because EU said uh, that, that, you know, we're not allowed to do that. Yeah, can you imagine Aimlo Quaive saying that? Or Mark McSharry who only the other day was saying we should be taking, we should be going out there and taking coronaviruses, uh, coronavirus vaccines, even from the KKK, if they happen to have it. Yeah, I, I feel there are a substantial amount of politicians in all of the parties in government who, if you told them after the decision that you had turned this down, would immediately respond by screaming and throwing things at you. <laughs> Can you imagine being the backbencher, or not even the backbencher, but who's, who's, being, this has been explained to him by Michal Martin early over Edgar. And his response is, so you're telling me I have to go back to Bally de Hob or Bally Hon or Cashel or wherever the hell and say, lads, we decided, you know, for the sake of European solidarity that we're not going to take the vaccines from them. Should we be better off? You're, that's what I'm going to be telling <laughs> And some lad stands up at that meeting and says, I couldn't spend time with my dying father or go see him in hospital because of this disease. And you turned down vaccines and that politician going, well, I mean, you wouldn't want the English to have the last laugh here, would you? Like, they'd, they'd hold it over us for, for so long. We'd be under a compliment to them. And just dead silence as people rooted through their handbags for the heaviest thing. <laughs> Oh, I, I'm seeing I'm seeing torches. You know that scene where they're where all the villagers are going to go up to the castle because they've heard the monster is back up in Doctor Frankenstein's castle. That's the that's what I have in mind. I did see a couple of people in on Irish Twitter who picked up on this. Like, we could, like, why would we do that? Why would we let the English get all these things and like to stop Irish people from dying? And you have to say, I mean, one of the things that's very noticeable in the the response on the, uh, from English people on social media about this was. I was saying, it was only 70, 30 in favour, but of the 30 who were not in favour, and even a number of those who are in favour, the constant theme was, yeah, remember how they tried, they screwed us over during Brexit, how unfriendly, how unproblematic, blah, all that stuff. So they have noticed this. I think that this could be an opportunity for them to enjoy that fact. Well, you know, that Brexit thing that we did, well, just this, okay, maybe we'll have problems and we will have problems. And by the way, you will have problems too. And if anybody's been to Tesco's recently and looked at the shelves, I mean, the fact is there are problems for, for Ireland, whether we like it or not with Brexit. But 
After that, effectively, the English aren't getting anything out of it, other than <clears throat> the opportunity to enjoy the discomfort of the Commission. Well, I mean, over the over the long term, I think the thing the British would get from it is a little bit of a bridge to a friend in Europe and a little bit of a positive relationship with them that they may not have at the minute. So I think that like there is value in that from the British perspective. I think also it is going to, in the Marxist language, it is going to draw out the contradictions that have essentially been papered over regarding that border. We still really haven't resolved in any substantial way the problems around how we integrate the Good Friday Agreement with Brexit and with the borders. Michael, you say that, but I think the last 24 hours have been a time of incredible unity on the issue of the border. Yes, they have provoked unity. I mean, the EU has really showed its capability to bring people together in a sort of common, you did fucking what? There's a great line in Catch-22 where I think one of the Colonel Cathcart says when he thinks he's being, he's, he's, He's punting for a promotion. He says, I have a great capacity to help to bring people together in agreement. And somebody comments afterwards, yes, he he has a great capacity to bring people together in agreement about what a prick he is. And I think that is what we have seen. I mean, Gary, triggering Article 16. Or not triggering Article 16. Maybe just threatening to trigger Article 16. Maybe triggering it and then reversing. It seems really unclear what happened here. I think the commission is, is very strong and it remaining as unclear as possible. Okay, Gary, just for clarity here, there are two there's things. There's the, the EU has decided it's going to go on this shutdown of exports of vaccines. That's globally. Now, and part of that that refers specifically to Ireland is what they call the triggering of Article 16. Just for clarity, can you explain what exactly Article 16 is in reference to Ireland and to Brexit and the North and all that? Did you just say triggering or triggling? Uh, triggling. It's a, it's a legal term. You can look it up afterwards. <laughs> I don't know why that amuses me so much, considering that I, when I'm editing these, all I can hear is how often I either mispronounce words or the microphone doesn't pick up the end and I sound like I have some sort of mild speech impediment. But on to, on to Article 16. So Article 16 is part of what's called the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that is particularly the agreement governs the UK's trading arrangements with the EU and the rest of the UK after Brexit. Sorry, with the, uh, Northern Ireland's trading arrangements with the European Union and the rest of the UK after Brexit. It was the big stumbling block for Brexit for quite a while, as we remember. Massive amount of effort for all involved. Uh, we put it to the EU very strongly and we presented it to the world as this was, you know, absolutely could not be anything that would impede any border with uh, Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland could have no border with the UK and that made it a massive a massive deal. Effectively, it means that Northern Ireland has a different status to other parts of the UK and in relation to goods, but I don't think services, it's effectively still inside the, uh, the EU customs territory in the single market. So it allows goods to kind of flow over the border between the Republic of Ireland to Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland to Britain in the same way it would have if, if Northern Ireland was effectively still an EU member. Article 16 of that, and I'll give you the, the text of it. It says, if the application of this protocol leads to serious economic, societal or environmental difficulties that are liable to persist or to diversion of trade, the Union or the United Kingdom may unilaterally take appropriate safeguard measures. So, effectively... 
this means that they can change the nature of Northern Ireland in relation to certain goods. So this is like this would be a pretty big deal to put into force. Okay. Effectively, what you could do is you could put a border between these territories in relation to a specific good if you thought it was necessary. The problem there is that if you do that, you have effectively breached the main purpose of this uh, of the protocol, which we presented as being incredibly important to the world and was a major sticking point for Brexit. So the problem now is that the EU has or hasn't, or did, and then reversed, incredibly unclear what's actually happened from the EU side of things. They released documents saying it was either going to be triggered or had been triggered, and are now saying that was just an oversight. But effectively, that would have changed the requirement very shortly after signing the requirement, uh, the, the protocol, within a month of signing it. And the fact that they were willing to do it for the vaccine sort of sets a... Um, like it wasn't in the in the protocol it wasn't defined what a serious impact was it was always left to the EU and the UK to determine what that is and if this is the level the EU sits at as they're effectively saying to the british anything of this severity you can activate article 16 it strikes me as the sort of article that was designed to be a safeguard more than to actually be implemented because as soon as you implement it it's going to be it it has per, per, the political consequences of it are um, pretty extreme, potentially. Yeah, it was it was put in so that when people said, okay, that's fine, but what if X, Y, and Z? Then the EU and the UK could say, ah, well, that's covered by Article 16. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing here is that the EU is it saying that it used particular emergency powers to activate this without consulting with either the Irish or the British governments. And what I found particularly interesting about that was obviously there was the initial outrage from the Irish government, the English government, uh, I think the German and French governments were apparently deeply unhappy. The Unionists, Sinn Féin, everyone came out against this thing and pretty much just started screaming at the Commission. But what I thought was interesting was that um, not only had we not been consulted about it, we hadn't even been informed that it was going to happen. And I think in the Irish press, that was, we, our press tends to be quite soft on the European Union. And there's nothing wrong about being supportive of the European Union, but we tend just not to report on certain things about the European Union. The British press and some of the foreign press openly describe this as a humiliation for our government, because, I mean, this is something the Irish government put immense effort into, and then the EU doesn't even bother to tell you it's doing this. Just no, no yeah. advance warning. You have to find out at the same time people on Twitter find out. And then you had uh, Michal Martin and Simon Coveney having to go on Twitter and telling people that they were going to call the commission to figure out what was happening here. Well, as Barry Cowan observed, this can't be done in the way that it was done. If it, if it were done, we don't know. They're trying to make fog around it as possible. If it was done, and it very much looked at the time like that they thought it had been done, it should. It couldn't. It couldn't have been done without that. There had to have been a, a meeting. There had to be an approval. They didn't even tell me how Martin they were going to do it. It looked like originally from some of the stuff that was being reported, not in Ireland, uh, that what had happened is they had decided to use some of the emergency powers they could give themselves in order to do things without consulting with the states, 
to activate Article 16 without the normal waiting period, a position which they just, uh, within about an hour, were claiming they had never held or yeah. even thought about. In fact, didn't even know was possible. The whole thing, Gary, is, is a... But the whole thing... I mean, we're looking at it, obviously, from the optic of the Irish context, but we now have reports... There's consternation in Australia. Canada, the Canadian press, were also upset about it because it turns out that most of the Pfizer vaccines that they'll be getting apparently come from Europe. And the border in this context comes into existence because they've decided that viruses... Anti, the, uh, the virus vaccines that are produced in Europe cannot be exported outside of Europe. And that means, for example, as the Australian newspaper, the, new, the Australian vaccine is now, plans are now in, uh, in disarray because they were sourcing, like, and also the Canadians, they were sourcing their vaccines from companies that were producing them within Europe. The North, obviously, as well, uh, was getting, some, some of them were, there were Pfizer vaccines, some of them AstraZeneca, which is, so most, a lot of them are produced, uh, at least part of them are produced in the United Kingdom. Some of them may be produced in other places in, within the EU. But it's, and remember, Gary, this is, is it even a week since Ursula said that we had to be careful and remember our, our responsibilities globally in Europe? And even if we did have a shortfall because of problems in supply with both Pfizer and AstraZeneca, uh, that we would be now in a position that we had to look to start giving vaccines to countries outside of Europe. With it, not, not even a week later, we're now we've shut the whole gaff down, and nobody's getting any. I see. I don't know because I remember when she came out and spoke about how free movement couldn't be impinged upon, and then I think in three days, four different European countries had uh, had restricted it in some way. Although I seem to remember the Irish government just last week saying that it wasn't possible to do such a thing. Tell the Germans that. And the Portuguese. Well, actually, and, and probably Portugal is more to the point because right now who wants to go to Germany? But there might be people who are looking at some maybe end of February sun in Portugal and thinking Let's, a trip to Portugal would be pleasant. But if you're Irish, no, no. I mean, we have these RTE cameras now camping out at uh, the airport to catch the wicked people coming back from their holidays. Now, to be honest, Gary, I'm finding it hard to get all excited about people coming back from Lanzarote or somewhere, when the fact is that pretty well everyone coming back from holidays is coming back from places which have lower rates of infection than we have here. And why particularly do these people... You know, the, the place you're most likely to get infected in Ireland is either in your own home or else in a hospital place you're most likely to die is if, if you're in, in, in a care home so actually the 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 infection rates in care homes i don't know if you've seen the the recent charts in the last like week or, or two weeks yeah they've shot way up like oh, incredibly yeah. far up. yeah because you know that was the mistake we weren't going to make again mm -hmm. the, the thing that we absolutely didn't fuck up the first time when we re-ordered them to reopen yeah and, uh, and we told them and definitely wouldn't do again the time when we when we said that those people supplying PPE couldn't supply the care homes, they could only supply the HSC. And when, they, when, the, when the care homes had stopped people visiting and had closed down and they were told, no, that was an overreaction and they shouldn't be doing it. This is back in the days. Oh, God, it's so, it seems like another word, Gary. When the, do you know what the most dangerous thing about this pandemic was? Panic, Gary. 
the thing more than anything else we have to avoid i remember the panic panic that was that was around the same time michael if i'm not mistaken that the uh, ceo of the group overseeing the or representing the nursing homes the long-term care facilities uh, he wrote to simon harris who was then minister for health and what was it, it took him it took simon harris a month to meet him yeah and then all those people him. died and we were very clear that we were not going to let this happen again we're going to protect the most vulnerable in society we're going to bundle them up. We're going to wrap them up in special, special antiviral bubble wrap and make sure that that never happens again. And now, lo and behold, people are not dying in hospitals. People are not dying in ICUs. People are dying in the care homes. That's where the numbers are, if you're looking for them. And thank God we're not making... So presumably it's a whole different set of mistakes we're making, Gary. But on, on the Article 16 thing, what I found really interesting was they release a document saying that it's being triggered. They then come back and say after, I mean, the DUP, Sinn Féin, the Tory party, Labour, Ireland, and from what I understand, most other EU countries basically yeah. started screaming at them and then said, no, no, we, we didn't mean to trigger that. It was never actually triggered at all. That was an oversight that that was left in the document that we released publicly saying what yeah. we were doing. That was an oversight, yeah. And we've taken it down and we'll put a new one up in the morning and it'll all be super cool. Of course, by that point, Canada, Australia and America were writing that the EU had put in place something which could be used to um, control vaccine supplies to their territories. So wars have been started for less than that. So coming out and saying, we just didn't proofread the document... Still doesn't make you look great. No, no, no. Although, speaking of proofreading documents, uh, did you see the redacted version of the AstraZeneca contract that they put out that it turned out wasn't actually redacted? You have to imagine that the sacrificial intern has been identified, brought to the altar of the Great Mistake Temple somewhere in Strasbourg or Brussels and sacrificed to the gods of, oh, well, it was him. It, that was brilliant. You have to explain to the people what they did. Like if they're using sacrificial interns, I mean, after this week, it'll be like a fucking Aztec city after a festival. <laughs> Dead interns all over the place. 200 years from now, an archaeologist just digging it up and it's just a pit. It'll be nothing but young young, young people clutching mass MA, MAs in public policy found dead all over Europe. So basically what, what happened is, is this. Uh, the EU had been pushing AstraZeneca to agree to uh, release a redacted version of the contract that they had signed with each other to supply vaccines. And AstraZeneca had agreed to release a redacted version of it. So the EU goes and it uh, releases the redacted version of it. The problem is, is that they hadn't redacted it properly. So if you opened up the document and you viewed it in a PDF reader, there's a thing called bookmarks where, you know, they're, they're just marks throughout the document of um, usually headings. But it turned out that they hadn't removed the bookmarks and the bookmarks had the text preview in them. So yeah. any section that was involved in this, you could just go to the bookmark and you could copy and paste and you could basically rebuild the document in a nearly entirely uh, unredacted form. Now, in doing so, they appear to have breached the confidentiality agreement, uh, the confidentiality part of the contract themselves, which is, in and of itself, a fuck-up. 
but I, I don't know with this what's happening now. AstraZeneca is obviously not going to walk away from it either. But it was just another fuck up from people. And this is not an uncommon thing. This happens all the time. To the extent that when I downloaded the document, the first thing I did was viewed it in a PDF reader. Because this thing happens so often. And then I didn't report it. Because I was like, well, it's, it's going to be in all the papers soon anyway. Because this had gotten out and journalists were talking about it. Not Irish journalists, but other journalists. And that was Friday. And then I got to Saturday and I'd slept in. I wasn't, you know... And I kind of went, I just look at how they're reporting this because I had seen some of the tweets by the Irish Times European cons- correspondent and I was like, they're going to try and spin this to be as positive as possible. And then I realized that no Irish newspaper had reported this. It just hadn't happened. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. And I put up a story. I'll put a link to it in the bottom of this. And the EU has taken down the improperly uh, redacted document. So, you know, as a public service, I've uh, uploaded it to Gripped. So if you click on the article, it's at the very bottom of it. And if you view it in a PDF uh, in a PDF reader, you can just look at the bookmark section and you'll be able to see pretty much the entirety of the uh, document. Now, there is actually an interesting thing that came about because of that um, contract, Michael. Yeah. We had been talking about best uh, effect, uh, best effort, sorry. Yes. Uh, versus and exactly how it was phrased. Now, I had read... There's a section called 5.1 of the actual contract, which said AstraZeneca should use its best reasonable efforts to manufacture the initial Europe doses within the EU for distribution and to deliver to the distribution hubs following EU marketing authorization, as set forth more fully in section 7.1, approximately redacted, and it's the figures for uh, Q1 2021. I had read that as AstraZeneca should should use its best reasonable efforts to A, manufacture, the distribute. I passed on someone uh, something that uh, was a um, lawyer, not in Belgium, but it was a procurement specialist. In fact, saying that you could read that to just apply to the first part, and then the second part is not a best effort uh, specific contractual line. It is for actual um, delivery. That I think is actually a pretty reasonable way to read the text. Um, I it looks like AstraZeneca is reading it the way I think it should be read. And the EU Commission is reading it the way that this chap says it can be read or it should be read. Sure, yeah. Not a good thing because that indicates that the contract should be clearer. Now, who drew up the contract? No, because I think it's in the principle in law is that in the case of an ambiguity in the contract, that the person who draws up the contract, the the uh, the interpretation will be in favour of the person who didn't draw up the contract. The first thing that occurs to me is precisely what would anybody achieve by taking this to law anyway? And how long and how long would that take and, and what would the outcome be and what would that mean? And also what would that mean long term? And what would all of this mean long term by the just by the way? For for the pharma industry in the EU. And if we're going to, if we're taking the position now and if it's going to remain the case that the the EU is going to impose some kind of blockade on vaccines produced within the EU and not allow those companies that have contracts with countries outside it to fulfill those contracts. That seems to me like a, a, the kind of thing that could cause problem in the medium to long term for a farm, for your, for the pharma industry within the EU, because surely a lot of our countries are going to say, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing business with the EU. We should, we should be looking for businesses which are sourced elsewhere, or maybe even at home, rather than to, to take this risk again. And international companies, American companies that have 
American companies, Russian companies, whatever, British companies that have production bases within the EU. I don't know if they're going to be that if that's going to encourage them to keep that to keep just to keep that kind of investment long term. But most of all, leaving that aside, I don't see what what it's going to be. I can tell you, I've just been. I had a quick run around some of the foreign press, the German, the Italian, and the French press, and the the, the sense that you get really a lot of the the continental European reporting on this is that this is the Commission is very much engaged in uh, a distraction and displacement exercise. But I will say, Gary, I, mean, I, I said before that my, my sense of reading the, the continental news is that this is a bigger story politically. And at a popular level he, there than it is here. Now it may be it may be coming here. It may be about to arrive. The maybe uh, you you've had serious rumblings. Well, the Germans have been have been get, have been pissed off about this since the Dutch Beagle story and then the political story. Political story. It's been big in Denmark. It's big in Italy now. It's big in the Netherlands. There are a lot of people very 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 annoyed, and they're very annoyed with the Commission. Not with AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca is a kind of a side story there. This is not the big story. Because the English thing maybe isn't such a big thing there. That perception that the English are ahead. And they don't really care about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was looking around to see the reaction to the, um, to the Article 16 thing. And it was interesting because it was being brought up, but it wasn't being brought up in isolation. Because I, I don't think... Like, it was important to the politicians in those countries because of the effort that went into Brexit. And this thing is meant to be an article of last resort. You don't just randomly fucking pull the trigger on it. Uh, because then the British, like this sets the bar of when it's appropriate to do it. And the British can do that as well. It was being brought up in relation to the commission. And a lot of it was actually directed uh, immediately at Ursula von der Leyen. Like Der Spiegel had a piece out there called, um, I think it was Commission President Seeking to Duck Responsibility. Uh, about how she was trying to get out of the firing line as European anger grows about the yeah. vaccine rollout. And then it said it's not the first time in her career that she has sought to evade responsibility. Well, of course, that, I mean, this was, would make no, this would be of no surprise to anybody in Germany because Ursula did not have a great reputation in Germany at all. Particularly in relation to procurement issues. Actually, specifically in regard when she was Minister for Defence. She was widely perceived within the military circles over there as made an absolute hames of it. On the plus side, at least she didn't. Uh, at least she didn't plagiarize her uh, doctoral thesis. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. Did you a comment I've been seeing around, which I don't know how seriously it's meant, but lots of people speculating about uh, had Phil Big Phil been still in the commission, would that would this have happened? I would have loved this being brought to Phil Hogan. He may legitimately have killed that intern himself. They wouldn't have made it to the sacrificial pit. Well, yeah. Well, Bill F Big Phil would have done it himself. <laughs> yeah, it's seen in Game of Thrones where, uh, who is it? It's it's the mountain gets on top of the guy and just crushes his skull. Oh, God, yeah. <sighs> yeah, it is actually important to point out um, that Ursula von der Leer did, uh, did get accused of plagiarising her doctoral thesis. And um, she did actually get found to have plagiarised portions of her doctoral thesis, but it wasn't revoked by her school because they said she had no intent to deceive. No intent to deceive. Oh, well, that's the important thing. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they said they had found elements of plagiarism on 27 of the 62 pages of her dissertation. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm just thinking, of course, with this, if it was the case, AstraZeneca might say that they had no intent to deceive. They had fully intended to do this if they could have done. And there was, I don't know if you saw, there was an, there was an article in the, in the time, Financial Times, which is usually a fairly reasonable source on these things, which is talking about the, the contract. And they quote um, a lawyer uh, with experience of these things in Brussels. And the contract was drawn up in Belgium, and it's covered by Belgian law. Mm. So that in any legal proceedings, the commission would have to prove that AstraZeneca had failed to meet normal standards of professional discipline. And more, and he says, a court case might be drawn out. Best efforts is not a meaningless concept in Belgian law. However, it is very hard. It is going to be very hard for the commission. This is super high stakes. And he said that uh, earlier on, he said that uh, he said that the commission sounds more certain than it should because these are quite unprecedented circumstances. So again, I go back. What does this achieve? And I suppose. Maybe they're saying if we shake a big stick, they'll, I don't know what, they'll double down on their efforts and do more. I'm sure they're producing as fast and as hard as they can anyway. Why wouldn't they? Ultimately, it seems to me the only reason they're doing this is because it's a way, it's a way, they want to get hold of the, some of the English supply. Well, that, that seems to be the, the issue here. They want to grab it. And I mean, from a European perspective, it is arguably good if they do so, given that it gives more vaccines to European countries, at least in the short term. In the long term, if I was Pfizer and EU started to do things effectively to seize vaccines, I would start getting very, very conscious of where my manufacturing plants are. But Gary, the point on that is the upper the upper limit number that they've been talking about of vaccines to be diverted in production is 75 million doses. That's the upper limit in number. And that's 75 million doses in the context of the European distribution is really not going to make a massive amount of difference to anybody. And to do this, to go through this kind of thing, to go through this kind of, to, 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 to close down the markets, to stop supply to countries that would be considered historically to be allies or friendly or in the Western world, places like Australia and Canada, to start ask, putting questions in people's minds about the long the long-term role, like you say, of Pfizer and, and others about production in Europe, is that, that seems to me that's a very, very high price to pay for something that isn't going to get you a whole lot in in the short term. Sorry, go on. An, an interesting thing that I noted about the AstraZeneca vaccine is that um, one of the things they've redacted, and which they actually redacted properly, is the actual doses, the, the number of vaccines that the contract says have to be delivered in the first quarter of 2021. Now, yeah. I don't know why they would redact that information, considering that they've discussed their targets. So it wouldn't seem to be commercially sensitive information. Or, well, it would, but it's also information that they've talked about. We shouldn't read excessively into the comp into something on the based on the assumed competence of the person doing the react the redaction here. There is actually one other thing I would point out here. The EU uh, EU sources told Politico that um AstraZeneca had demanded I think they said ninety five percent of the sections that were redacted and that the EU felt that the sections that were redacted were uh, further supported the EU case. And then the EU released a version which was effectively unredacted. However, 
certain sections of the document had been effectively redacted. And in fact, certain pages, like the page that talks about the Q1 vaccine doses, that wasn't just rejected. That was replaced by an image of the page. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Are there, con- are there security concerns about identifying those partic- the particular plants that are involved in the production of the elements? I would think the question here is, is this a mistake? Because... You give a you you have your people going out saying that the redacted text is very positive towards you, and then you accidentally release a version which is arguably largely unredacted. So yeah, I mean that's entirely possible. That's an error. It's also entirely possible that that's a deliberate act. And I'm not saying it is, but I think it's something that should be considered. It could be. It could be. I mean, I always go on the basis never explain for with malice what could be explained by. Uh, incompetence. Which works until you're dealing with someone who thinks they're smart. <laughs> what's the what's that thing where people you know measures of things that go together in who people in government and the the very the very worst one is low intelligence and high uh, I, I want to say slyness. It's it's a, a fancier, more academic word for slyness, um, deceitful. High levels of deceit and low levels of of intelligence. That's the worst combination of anybody in government. And that may be what's operating here. I've just... This situation has kind of... Politico has always been very sort of pro-Brussels. But on the AstraZeneca thing, and on vaccines more generally, it has just been... Like, the slant has been pretty hilarious at times. Yeah, I mean, in the stories they ran in the the days after their speaker story broke... It was pretty coruscating about the EU and about the handling, both at the Commission and uh, and the planning and uh, and the rollout. So, uh, for whatever reasons, Politico may have, they just may think they're making the bags of it and they deserve to get it in the neck. That may that may in fact be a sign that this is a mistake because Politico does not have an article on the unredacted uh, contract. Ah, mm. well, we want to have just a quick word, I think, about the. Uh, Remarkably dull opinion poll. Oh, of course, yes. Which has uh, Ireland elected on Tawera, which has come out uh, Red Sea Research. Um, Fine Gael down five on 29, Sinn Fein down three on 27. Fianna Fáil surging, surging up four to 16%. So nearly on the, the dizzying heights that they enjoyed in the 2011 election after the, cur- the complete collapse of the economy and the arrival of the Troika and the bailing out of the banks and the paying off of the bondholders. Social Democrats up one and five, Green Party five, Labour Party three, Social uh, People for Rock three, and into one two. I mean, and again, I suppose the big news, big news, is this the, the wonderful performance of Fianna Fáil almost on 2011 levels, which will be of great, I'm sure, comfort so all the Fianna Fáil backbenchers and TDs out there. Uh, good news, I think, for Ain too, that this is, uh, the, I think the last poll had Ain on 4%. This has them on 2%. For, so we're now looking at Ain pretty consistently appearing in the numbers. Yeah, well, I, I don't think it was a Red Sea poll last time. I think it was one of the other poll makers. Although, and I mean, the, the so you have two polls, one at two, one at four, which would certainly suggest they're like, they're in the mix there somewhere. One uh, percent behind uh, Labour, one percent behind Labour, which years ago would have been impressive, and is still impressive now for a, a relatively new party with very little limited funding. Like a party with very little funding 
with a with one TD, a handful of councillors, no real presence on the ground, very little real party structure. Um, if they can stick, and well, they need to grow. They need to get. If they can get up around three percent, three three, obviously two percent for the is the target for them to get funding, which will be trans. I think potentially transformers for them. Uh, but also, if they can get up around three percent and four, then if there are a couple of targets where they can get a good good candidate with a decent profile in the right geography, you never know. They might be able to sneak in another TD there. But and more to the point, looking forward to the next uh, European and and local elections. Because if A2 are going to be in it for the long haul, the mistake parties historically have made, I think, is to think too much in terms of the doll and the Shannon, not enough in the terms of local government. County councillors, that's where you start. Build up your council base, create that pool of talent, create a visible place where local people can think, oh, that party exists, that might be a party I'm willing to get involved in. And hatch. And the big thing, and this is something we have all understood back in the 20s, you have to have something for people, not just to be a member of a thing, but you have to be, there has to be something for them to do. There has to be work for them to engage in. And that's what local government, local part, local presence in the local councillors give, gives you. It gives you someone to work for, gives you someone to work with and to be to be active. And that keeps people involved. Otherwise, They'll join, they'll pay their fees, and after a while they'll just disappear because, you know, it's essentially not ha- it's not happening. But it is, there, there are two things, I think, which are important here uh, in relation to into One is in relation to polls because people tend to go, you're on 2%, you're within the margin of error. And I know we've mentioned it repeatedly, but one last time. Margins of error are uh, given. They're not equally distributed. So if there's a 3% margin of error, that is generally, that is not the same that is the average of the of the margin of error across that poll. So once you get to the extremes, like once you get down to the low percentage, you're not dealing with a 3% margin of error. You're dealing with a fractional margin of error. So it's probably relatively accurate on ain't two. They're probably somewhere in that two to four, depending on, on which poll you like area. Or if they're unlucky, you know, like 1.75. The second thing is that could be good for ain't two if they can hit the 2% and they can get the funding. The danger that they will have is that if they're on 2% nationally the, and they don't run someone everywhere, then you won't get 2%. So you'll have areas of high support, but if those areas are not enough to counteract the areas in which they're not running, if they do what they did last time and frankly don't run enough candidates, then they could see themselves falling below 2% again, even though they are they are nationally popular enough to hit it. And I mean, that happened once. And I remember saying before, I thought it was a mistake and they should run more candidates. And then they got very, very close, but just didn't get across the line. And I mean, if that happens again, that would be... Uh, it would be very hard to return from. Yeah. I mean, even just internally, if, if, if it was decided to do that again and you just hit below 2% again, that's when you start kind of going, okay, who is in these board positions? Who is handling this strategic element? Uh, and do they need to be replaced? Which the answer would absolutely be yes. Obviously, on unlike a uh, unlike an official party, the, their problem is if if they if they were coming from the position where like they were Labour or whatever, they can run part they can run TDs and it doesn't it doesn't essentially cost them anything. Uh, for in two to run a candidate, every candidate they run they have to put in what is it five hundred quid? Do they have to? I thought they got that for free now. No, well, I honestly changed very recently. 
But no, it, uh, if you're not a registered party, if you have that mean, in other words, you have got your over your 2%. If you're a registered party in the doll, then you can, well, not the doll necessarily, like say renewal, when in the, they, they had, they were, they were, uh, they were an official party because they got over 2% the previous time. They didn't have to pay for the candidates. But if you're running, say, as an independent or a party which isn't, hasn't got the over, hasn't met the threshold previously, and you don't get, is it a fifth of a quota? There's a percentage of a quota that you have to get at, at which point you get your expenses back, which would be your five, your, your, but if, so a lot of these places, they're not going to look at that, but they're not going to get, they're not going to get the expenses back, but they have to make a point, they have to say, listen, we're going to have to get the money somewhere, we're going to have to find the money, we're going to, and just run the candidates because the last day they were running over 2% almost all day. And it really looked like then just at the end, they fell behind, they fell under the 2%. And that meant they didn't get the funding. And it makes a massive difference to your capacity to run a political party. It really does. And I think they, they can't afford to make that mistake again. Now, it may be that uh, by the time we get to the next election, who knows, they may be up on 5 and 6% and they may have... They may be getting money in from membership, and they may be they may be getting donors, and they won't and it won't be a problem for them. We don't know. We say it's a mistake, and I did say a mistake at the time, but I could also understand where they were coming from, where they were saying, "Look, it's difficult and it's expensive." And you're like, "Yes, it is," but I still have the opinion that it should be done. Now I think they're a little bit better established. There's much less of an excuse to do that again, uh, and if they were to do it again this time, not run enough candidates to miss the two percent i think it's much more of a deliberate blamable error of someone whereas before you could at least go look okay you you thought it would work out a certain way you'd never done this before and you you know you were very resource limited now they will have had years to prepare they have money to some degree they have a bit of press it should be done and if it's not done it's a problem well we shall see we shall see whenever the next election comes and god knows when it'll be it i I had my in my bones. I thought it was going to be sometime in the summer because I thought the vaccine rollout would have effectively meant that we would have been pandemic controlled by June. At right now, I don't think that's a prospect, and I don't see us. The Italians are going to have an election in the middle of the pandemic, but then again, the Italians are used to having elections in difficult circumstances. I suppose uh, it doesn't seem to bother them. I don't think that would be a, a runner here. So we should have to wait and see. We should, and we wait with bated breath. Well, not too basic, because by the time it happens, we would be uh, asphyxiated, I suspect. I'm going to include a, a link to the Der Spiegel article I mentioned um, about von der Leyen uh, seeking to duck responsibility. Because you've got to remember, she is from Germany. Like, and Der Spiegel is like it's it's comfortable with the german government and this fucking article just tears strips out of her like it's brutal it's uh it's pretty something actually because <laughs> yeah. von der Leyen was a member of merkel's party as well yeah yeah i actually i don't know if she's still a member i don't know if you have to if you can stay a member once you become once you join the commission presumably so because i don't think hogan ever left Fine Gael. no i don't think so yeah uh I think there was a brief, there was a period where briefly Ursula was being muted as a successor. Well, that's dead. To Merkel. Yes, that's, that's dead. Germans are, are, are going through a period, I was talking to a couple of Germans there recently, who are not necessarily big fans of Merkel, even though they are members of our party. 
and they were saying that a lot of Germans are going through Muti, Muti withdrawal symptoms. Uh, the, the nickname for uh, Merkel is Mer Muti Merkel with Muti is mummy or ma. And uh, she, she's, uh, there's something very reassuring for Germans about the figure of Merkel, even though she has made some, I would say, cataclysmic errors, uh, opening the border and then 24 hours later going, oh my God, oh my God, quick, stop, stop, close them again. As a couple of million people surged across the Bal Balkans heading, heading for Munich. But they, they're very fond of her, and they're, they're getting kind of nervous, the idea of a word without Merkel. Yeah, the, Der Spiegel takes on, on, uh, on von der Leyen. It runs through every department she's ever been involved with and the problems she created, and then said that every one of them, the timing of her departure was impeccable. Just as the time <laughs> had come to evaluate her policies, which were always these massive you know, revolutionary changes. She'd already climbed up the next rung on her career ladder, which is why she is now faced with a real problem. There isn't anywhere left to go. There's nowhere left to hide. You can't get promoted <laughs> up again. Now you're here when the questions are being asked. Your Spiegel is saying like, there are now concerns about her political future. Oh, yeah. A few people have been saying it's it, they've booked a taxi for her uh, for on, on Monday morning. A taxi's going to roll up outside and bring her back to Frankfurt. But I don't suppose that's the way. I did notice that uh, that a number of people had come out expressing their support for her, which is always a worrying sign. Has Neil Richmond come out yet? Oh, God, I don't know if Neil would count. Yeah, I, I hope the British, um, I hope the British do offer us the vaccines because it would be great for the country and, you know, be, you know, it would help save lives. But I also hope they do it and that they do it and there's you know the irish ministers have to come in for press releases and grit their teeth and shake the hands and i hope neil richmond has made lead that delegation <laughs> maybe they'll well i know it's a little bit away yeah well there's only a fortnight maybe they'll send over a valentine's day card with an offer inside why can't we be friends <laughs> and we will be back on wednesday inshallah all the best <clears throat>